as was already mentioned in both the announcements and in the prayer, it's indeed a blessing that we have this morning to come together like this with the shades of beauty about us outside, the character that all is well with us health-wise, at least enough to allow us to come together this morning. We are thankful that those, some who have been sick, are able to be back with us. We do hope that the continuation of their health will continue to improve. And we're the rest of us also thankful, of course, for the degree of health that we have to be able to come together today. As again, let me state my appreciation to the gentleman who filled in for, for me being away last week at the, at the gospel meeting elsewhere. And certainly we're glad to be able to be back here today with our Pippin family. Let's not forget our singing this afternoon at the 2 o'clock hour, as I mentioned just a few moments ago. And certainly come out if you can and lift your voice together in song as we praise God together. During our studies over the past couple of months, we have made note of the fact that the Bible Bowl is, of course, well underway in the sense of preparation. Our youngsters have been studying and our teachers have been working with them. Others have been preparing questions and that event is now that, not that far in the future, actually. I thought that this morning we would continue that series of lessons with some observations from the next section in the book of John. So far, we have seen a portrait of Jesus that is truly majestic. I've listed some of the highlights about the Savior, His divinity, His majesty, His glorious wonder as it is portrayed to us in the book of John. After all, in chapter 1, He is the Word. And after all, that Word was made flesh and dwelt among men, John 1.14. We also notice that in fact, in chapter 4, he was the source of, ever, of water that could provide everlasting quenching of thirst, John 4.14. He's the bread of life, John 6.35. He is the light of the world, John 8, verse 12. He's the resurrection and the life, John 11.25. He is the great shepherd, John 10, verse 9. He is the door of the sheep, John 10, verse 7. It doesn't seem to matter what avenue or, in fact, what aspect one chooses. The Savior is the answer to every problem, every failure, every difficulty that clouds the way of mankind. We shall find, I think, even the next section of our study, which will come from John 13, verse 31, to John 14, verse 31. That's our next study. That even in that text, we'll see the heaviness of the Savior's mind, but yet the desire He had to reach out and touch those who are about him. Let me invite your attention then to John 14, 31 as we begin our study this morning of the next section in the book of John. Those ideas perhaps take the following form. Jesus, most recently in our last study, had identified the one that would betray him. He handed the bread to Judas Iscariot. And at that moment, we appreciated that Satan entered into Judas, and Judas immediately went out and began to make the preparation for the betrayal of the Master. We can notice immediately following that activity, Jesus spoke about the glorification of Himself and the fact that God would glorify Him and that His work would glorify God. May we never lose sight of the significance of bringing glory and honor to God. It is a fundamental aspect of what the church is about, isn't it? In fact, in Ephesians 3.21, let us notice what is the mission of the church. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without, world without end. Amen. You and I as members of the body have the precious and wonderful task of directing glory, 
and honor and prestige to the God of heaven who, in fact, made the church possible and who, in fact, blesses us so majestically each day. Might we notice in the Lord's statements on that occasion, He also spoke about a new commandment. Yes, indeed, a new commandment. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus wrote, "...that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another." The new commandment of which the Savior spoke had to do with the aspect of loving one another. These events again took place on that night prior to the Lord's crucifixion. As He was gathered with those disciples, He told them, You love each other. This is the way by which others are going to know that you're My disciples. If you portray, if you exemplify, if you exhibit love one for another. It's perhaps interesting to notice following that statement in the last three verses of the chapter that Peter spoke of the loyalty that he had for the Savior. He spoke of the fact that, Lord, I will never, in fact, move aside from you. And yet Jesus, in the last verse of the chapter, said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. That would all take place in just a few hours from when Peter made that statement. That helps us also appreciate the placement that we should ever understand. We need to walk watchfully, ever vigilant of the fact that we may stumble and we may fall and our faith may falter. Might I ask you to notice just a few statements in lesson form about this, these few verses in chapter 13. What about this commandment that's new? Loving each other. Is that really new? Does one find that in the context of the Old Testament? Notice again the Lord said in verse 33 and verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you. Even though it had been stated in the Old Testament, Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and following. Nowhere did we explicitly find this statement of loving each other. Certainly not to the extent that I have loved you, the Christ said. I would invite your attention with me over the next few moments to appreciate more clearly what is that saying and what does that mean for me as a Christian and what does it mean for you as a Christian. First of all, we might notice the word that the Lord employed, that word love, is the word agapao. Perhaps you've heard it in similar fashion as agape, but agapao. Here's the definition of that word. It refers to love that is based upon evaluation as well as on choice. It is thus a matter of will and a matter of decision. It is a mental attitude of choosing to thus act toward another in an aspect of that person's well-being. It has the best interest of its object at heart. And it is a mental decision on your part and mine to act that way. Notice, it isn't based on emotion. It isn't based on personal preference. It's based upon a mental choice to behave toward that person in the way toward their best interest. With that idea in mind, might we ask just a few comments? Do I behave that way? And do you behave that way? Do we as brothers and as sisters in Christ behave in an agapao fashion one toward another? 
as we examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, as we prove that which is good, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, certainly that would include an asking of our agapao one for another, wouldn't it? With those kind of ideas in mind, let us turn our attention and ask the questions based upon how love is defined. In 1 Corinthians 13, we find the love chapter of the Bible. Maybe we've often thought about, read, perhaps analyzed and studied that chapter where Paul identifies and describes love for the characteristics that it displays and for some that it does not display. I have chosen five of those characteristics that I thought were especially pertinent to what the Lord said in John 13. Let me invite our attention to these five. Among the things that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind. But he also affirmed in that same chapter that love vaunteth not itself. In addition, he affirmed love is not easily provoked. He went on also to say that love is both patient and enduring. And again, that's found in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8. Let me, in fact, invite us to consider then the following ideas. Let's now turn that into a personal exposition. After all, what is my attitude toward my brothers and my sisters in Christ? And certainly you ask the same. What is your attitude toward your brothers and your sisters in Christ? And based upon that which we've just read, do you ever act unkindly toward them? Remember, love is kind. And the Lord said, love one another as I have loved you. Thus I should ask, do I act unkindly toward my brethren or my sisters in Christ? Do you act unkindly toward them? Having the capability to bestow kindness or to look upon them in a way of exhibiting the matter of the great kindness of God because God has shown us kindness, Ephesians 2 verse 4. Those questions perhaps are significantly great that we can personalize it this way. Do I choose with purpose in my heart not to speak to one of my brothers or my sisters in Christ? Now notice, we're not saying that one inadvertently overlooks it. Do I make a purposeful decision not to speak to one of my brothers or one of my sisters in Christ? If so, that certainly is an act of unkindness. And it thus would fly in the face of the statement that love is kind and the new commandment that Christ placed upon me. Do I choose purposefully not to interact with one of my brothers and my sisters in Christ either in service or in work or in some other activity? Those questions are good ones, aren't they? There certainly are occasions and there are times when in the workplace one sees cliques develop or places where people shun others because they want to have no dealings with them. In their mind, maybe they aren't good enough or they don't wear the right kind of clothing or they don't associate in the right circles. The church ought not be that way. The church is an amalgamation of brothers and sisters in Christ who all have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. They all are headed to the same place, at least that's the intent, heaven itself. And in that, they each follow the same master to get there. And they walk the straight and narrow path to arrive. Do we act unkindly then one toward another? That degree of unkindness, if so, would certainly be a great thing as we consider the nature of what it would bring to bear. 
But in addition to that means of unkindness, might we ask yet another question? Do you or I lift ourselves up in ways that would be improper? I have phrased that in the following question. Do you and I exalt or lift ourselves up as, as, as if we, in fact, are over another? And as we do so, complaining maybe about what another hasn't done or has done, we must be rather careful as we would seek to act in that fashion. Because after all, if we are exalting ourselves, remember it's the Lord said, He that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Luke 14, 11. Might we thus appreciate that love does not vaunt itself. Rather, love looks upon the interests of others. In what way are you or I able to encourage another on his or her way toward eternal glory? It's not about me personally first. My needs will be taken care of as others consider themselves and my family in regard to those needs. But in addition to that, what about a third question? Notice that we also notice that love is not easily provoked. Love doesn't wear its feelings on its sleeve and flies off the handle in a rage over nothing. Love doesn't behave that way. Love has a tender appreciation for perhaps the plight of another and appreciates that perhaps that person has done or is doing the best that their abilities will allow. Thus, are you and I quick to perhaps speak of another, well, he can do better than that. Surely he can do, in fact, more completely and adequately and thoroughly than that. I can beat that. That's not the point. You might be able to say a prayer better than that. You might be able to lead singing better than that, but that's not the point. If that brother is doing the best he can do, if he is using his talent, his capabilities, his interests in the best way that God has given that skill, God asks no more of them, and certainly we shouldn't. And by the same token, you can put in any other activity in that same discussion, not just men, but women alike. Thus, as we love one another, we must ever be enduring and patient, because love is patient, isn't it? Do we show the patience to our brothers and our sisters in Christ that we should? Sometimes maybe we fail in that, that newborn babe in Christ. We expect too much. We expect that person to have the degree of biblical knowledge that we do who've been a Christian for 20 years. We expect that person to already be able to thoroughly engage in various activities of service even though the person's a novice in the faith. With tenderness and with patience and with endurance we should strive to help them mature and to grow. And see, love is a rather amazing thing, isn't it? It touches every aspect of our work at Pippin. As our elders seek to love us, they often will rebuke or at least lead us by way of instruction in the way that we would not otherwise have gone. That's how they love us. By the same token, you and I as Christians should love them by following, and we should, of course, all love each other as the Savior has taught those degrees of love challenge us to think about the example of Paul. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 13, we might remember this episode of the life of Paul. Here was a man who at that moment was in prison. 
and yet to the Philippian brethren, he could to them write that I pray that your love may abound in all judgment and in all excellency. Paul knew that a critical element in their growth would be love. And he prayed that it would abound. And thus it would manifest itself in their actions one toward another. And furthermore, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that love is to be expressly seen in language like this. I'd invite you to read that particular set of verses with me. In Philippians 2, beginning in verse number 1, Paul had these words to say. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there be any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same joy, or having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves." Doesn't that sound much like many of the things we had read in 1 Corinthians 13? Notice again, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That sounds a great deal like love vaunteth not itself. He went on to say in verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. As we seek to apply this loving one another concept, Perhaps we should readily recollect that there are several passages in the New Testament that in addition explain that further. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, we are therein taught that among the Christian graces, one of them is brotherly love, love for the brethren. Another one is charity or simply love. Do you and I exemplify that brotherly kindness, that love for the brethren as we should? May we strive to be patient and enduring. May we strive, in fact, not to grumble or be so quick to complain when our brothers and our sisters are doing perhaps the best that they are able to do. Rather than complaining, we should be there with a hand of encouragement to them, a hand of support for them, and a thankfulness that they have taken that work in order to engage in it. Those things perhaps lead us to notice some more elements from this text in John chapters 13 and 14. Could I direct your attention now to some of the things in chapter 14? The approach to God is the title I've given to this portion of the lesson, and it seems to me that using verse 6, that is a critical idea. This is again one of the main verses, the key verse, if you please, in the book of John. Jesus on this occasion spoke a number of things that no doubt weighed heavily upon his mind. Place yourself for just a moment in his position. In less than 12 hours, he's going to be nailed to a cross. And during the course of that night, he's going to be spat upon, betrayed. During the course of that night, his disciples are going to flee. During the course of that night, a number of people are going to do a number of things to him, like slap him on the face, blindfolded and say, tell us who hit you. He's going to be insulted, reviled, mocked, mistreated in any number of ways, and yet to this group of disciples who had been with him now for about three years, he wanted to leave with them some memorable and lasting words that would guide them even after he was dead. Among the things that he said, beginning in verse 1, were these, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Though many lessons could be extracted from that rather brief statement, let me just pull out one of them, if I might. And this is a lesson that has lifted a burdened heart so many times, perhaps in my life and even in yours. There ye may be also. There is life beyond the grave. That's the whole point of what Jesus was saying. The place he spoke of, he said, is in my Father's house. And there are mansions there. And he said, you can be there also. Let us never think then that this life is all that there is. Though the world does present loveliness, and though it does present beauty, and though it does present attractive things, none of it compares with the loveliness, the beauty, and the attractiveness of heaven. And hence, our principal desire should be to reach that place. If we're satisfied with this one, believe me, this is the best we're ever going to have. Because you see, hell is what waits for those who think this life is all there is. Jesus told those disciples, There ye may be also. You know, it's true that many in the world will say, I want to go to heaven. I suspect if you ask a thousand people off the street, not a one of them would say, I want to go to hell. Every one of them would say, I want to go to heaven. And many of them will say, I expect to be there. That does lead to a good question. It's not automatic, though, that one will arrive at that glorious place. Jesus said, there ye may be also, but notice he said, I will come again. How will he find you, and how will he find me when he comes back? Will we be ready to inherit that place? Again, it's not an automatic thing. Rather, preparation is involved. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. It follows that the prepared place is only for those whose names are such that they have prepared for it. What about the Lamb's Book of Life? Is your name in it? It is safe to say that the Lamb's Book of Life is the reservation's book for the mansions in heaven. If your name is not in that Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation chapter 20, then you have no mansion, no room awaiting in heaven. There ye may be also, but you must make sure you've reserved your room. Have you reserved it today? Have you turned your attention to the purity and the clarity of this word, forsaking all matters of Satan in the world, and devoted your life in fullness to its obedience? If you have, may in fact you continue to live that way, for you're blessed. You have all the hope of heaven at your disposal. But if you haven't begun to live and to walk that way, friend, why do you delay? Do you again think that this world is the best that there is? Don't find yourself sorely regretful on the day of judgment. There you may be also, is what the Savior stated here. Isn't it amazing that, of course, heaven is the place for which Jesus is describing? And in fact, given the things that exist in this life, do we not know in the betterment of our mind that heaven is such a much better place than this? In Revelation 21.4, heaven is a place with no sorrow, no pain, no crying, no curse, no death. All of that that makes life here bring tears to our eyes, tears of sadness, tears of disappointment, tears of hurt, 
None of that will be there. And you and I can look forward to this Jesus, there ye may be also. I might submit to you that all the materialists who have ever lived certainly must reach the end of their life in agony thinking about if there's nothing better than this, then life is rather meaningless, isn't it? The story is told, and from what I gather, it's a true one. A gentleman whose last name was Ingersoll in the latter part of the 19th century, he was a devout materialist. He did not believe in God. He did not believe in the Bible. In fact, he devoted a fair part of his life going around the country lecturing on the contradictions in the Bible and encouraging people to forsake it. When he reached the end of his life, practically on his deathbed, he made a statement that I can't, cannot quote the fullness of it, but a few of its portions look like this. He said, Life without the Bible and life without God is a meaningless existence between two eternities. Even he came to realize the emptiness of life without what, the God, without what God teaches. May we stand in loveliness, in appreciation of what Jesus told those disciples that night, there you may be also. But that leads us to ask, how do we get there? That's our second lesson this evening. This morning, I should say, Jesus is the exclusive pathway to God. We stated that heaven is that wonderful place and that you and I can be there. How does one arrive at that place? Verse 6 reads like this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That is as thoroughly an exclusive statement as one will find in all the pages of God's Word. Jesus did not say, it's unlikely that you will make it there without me. He didn't say, it's probable that you will not make it there without me. He said it in these words, no man can enter into heaven except by me. It is rather a tragic and somewhat amazing thing that mankind throughout the centuries has taught many answers to this place called heaven. There are those who will claim you must be a part of a certain cult. Do you notice on the news every few years it seems there is a rather cultic group who engage in various sinful activities and yet they have a leader who will directly tell them that unless they subscribe to his teaching, they cannot go to heaven. And these people believe it. There was Waco in the early 1990s. Jim Jones in the late 1960s. More recently, the cultic group in Texas and in Utah. Notice, these are people who are teaching the way to heaven is by way of a certain set of doctrines. Jesus said, it's by me and no other. doesn't matter about any other thing that might be substituted. In fact, have you heard someone make statements like, I think my life is good enough. I don't murder anybody. I don't, in fact, engage in other activities like adultery or fornication. I live a good moral life. I don't remember Jesus saying anything about morality here. He said, No man, verse number 6, cometh unto the Father but by me. Oh, it's true, a moral life is a necessary ingredient. But one must subscribe to the teaching of Jesus, else heaven is not that which awaits, is it? Can you and I not see the exclusive way of Jesus here? In rather blunt language, 
He again said, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. As you and I consider all that that implies, there are no exceptions to that teaching, not a single one. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you and I want to be saved, if any person wants to be saved, it is only by means of Christ and His teaching. In fact, if there were some other way, would God have sent His Son into the world? Would He have allowed Christ to shed His blood and agonizingly die on the cross if there had been any other way to heaven? I submit to you from the Hebrew letter the answer is no. And yet that's the reason, that's the purpose, that's the mission that Christ fulfilled to make a way for you and me to be saved. It is the case in that statement that leads us to the last portion of our lesson this morning. In verse number 15 of this same chapter, Jesus in very brief language said, If you love me, keep my commandments. All three parts go together. The first one was, there ye may be also. Question, how do we get there? Next, Jesus said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Third one, what then is involved in going by you, Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments? Thus, if you and I would be pleasing unto God, if we would walk pleasingly unto Him, and live in such a way that heaven will be our home, it is only by keeping the commandments of Jesus. Thus, what you and I think doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter what the greatest scholars of all time have thought. It doesn't matter what the most noble individuals who've ever lived have in fact taught. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Of course, that directly means that if one does not keep his commandments, then one does not love him. If only the world could appreciate the thoroughness of that idea. It doesn't matter what you think. If you are not keeping Jesus' commandments, you do not love Him. That's what the Lord said. And thus, many individuals who claim, I love Christ, I love the Lord, I love the church, but then they teach and practice and worship and act in ways contrary to His teaching. I'm sorry, friend, you don't love Him. For He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That again is as exclusive and as straightforward a statement as to be found anywhere in the Word of God. As one contemplates what it means to love Him, isn't it then sad to ponder the changes that we have begun to see in the church at least in the last two to three decades? There are those who now prefer to orchestrate the activities of the church primarily, it seems, for the function of convenience. What is more convenient to me? And hence, there are some who will gather on Saturday night to worship. Or what is more convenient for me? And so, they will in fact change any number of other things to make it more convenient for me. Where is the word convenience in John 14, 15? The last I checked, it's not there. If you love me, keep my commandments. That is a very exclusive and direct teaching in the sense that on the day of judgment, this is that which will be raised as the matter of the standard in judgment. What you and I thought will make no difference. What was convenient will be unimportant. But when God's commandments are thus listed... 
and the check marks are stated, did we comply with them or not? There then will, in fact, be the case of asking, will you and I be saved or will we not? If you love me, keep my commandments. In John 14, verse 21, to make certain we didn't miss the point, the Lord reiterated it. Would you read verses 21 and then verse 23 with me? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. That's verse 21. Verse 23 reads, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That one is especially strong, isn't it? For who is it that God finds himself with? It's with those who love Him, meaning those who keep His commandments. God hasn't promised association with those who will not keep His commandments. It's no wonder then how important it is for us to ensure that we diligently study and obey the things revealed to us in the Word of God. How serious is it not to obey? First, in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, we see how serious it is. For those who obey not the gospel will be the ones who reap the eternal wrath of God. For isn't it there said that Jesus will appear with the angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on who? On them that obey not the gospel. In summary this morning to our lesson, we have noticed these four interesting points. We first of all notice the importance of the Lord's statement, Love one another as I have loved you. Then we took an interesting look at three of the ideas of chapter 14, one of which was, There ye may be also, a view toward heaven. Secondly, we notice that the way to that place is through Christ and Him alone. Thirdly, it involves the keeping of His commandments. And that's how we illustrate and that's how we demonstrate our love for God. It doesn't matter what else we say if we do not love Him, or rather if we do not keep His commandments, we do not love Him. In fact, because of our love for Him, that's why we keep His commandments. Today, have you kept His commandments? Have you begun your walk with Christ? Have you allowed His blood to wash away your sins? If you are in a position of being what's called an alien sinner, one who has never rendered obedience unto God, if you are at that stage in life and know that you are in, in sin and you know what Christ did for you, you need to obey today. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. If we could help you following your belief and repentance, if we could help you in regard to your confession and baptism, what a wonderful day for you it would be. You would in fact be added to the church by Christ. Your sins would be washed away if you have done that, but you have not lived faithfully to Christ. You have stopped loving Him, meaning you've stopped keeping His commandments. Come back to your first love. God hasn't given up on you, but when the time of your death comes, or when the Christ returns, it'll be too late anymore after that. If you need to respond today in either of those ways, in the latter, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. But we need you to let us know what help we can be. If you would do that, please do it even now while together we stand while we sing.